Okay, so if you have Bibles or other devices, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, and I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 14. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Praise the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, a long time ago, I noticed something about uh, the inner suburbs of Melbourne, where, where we are. Um, it, it seems that a large amount of the people who are here are not actually from around here. Only a few people in our church, for example, uh, were actually raised here in Melbourne. For most of us, um, home is elsewhere, right? Uh, it's in India or South Africa or China or the United States or Thailand or Singapore or Malaysia or Colombia and other countries that I've, I've missed off this list. Or perhaps a bit closer to home, um, you, your home is in Adelaide or Tasmania, or Sydney, or Perth, or even closer to home, um, perhaps really uh, home for you is regional Victoria, say Ballarat or Shepparton. Uh, for most of us here gathered on Zoom, we've made a choice to make a home here in Melbourne quite far from our original homes. Now, most of us made that decision willingly, I imagine. We came here because of job offers, or education, or adventure. Uh, but for a few of you, perhaps, um, and for thousands more in our city, the decision to come here uh, was forced upon you. Perhaps you came to escape 
political chaos or religious persecution or economic struggle. Uh, being a, uh, a, a visitor, a, a foreigner, I guess, in a, in, a, in a city or in a country has its challenges, but nothing comes close to the hardship of being forced from your home as a refugee or as an exile. Many Christians um, have deep sympathy for people in this situation, right? Many of us do. We do. Um, and, and for good reason, because these themes of home and exile um, are woven through the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation. In the first few chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve are exiled from their garden home in Eden because their sin made them unfit to dwell there. Now, later, God um, met Abraham and formed the nation of Israel and gave, gave them this covenant promise uh, that he would come and make his home among them. They would be his people, that he would be their God. But he also warned them that if they followed in Adam and Eve's footsteps and rebelled against him and dismissed his commandments, then exile would be their consequence too. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, um, we see God laying out the consequence of this. Um, and this is Moses writing, he says, if you do not obey God, he will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. And after hundreds of years and a thousand chances, that's exactly what happened, actually. Israel turned from worshipping God to worshipping idols um, and as they did, corruption set in to their society. Um, and eventually, as we track the story, um, they hit the lowest of the lows with the king Manasseh, uh, who um, promoted the practice of sacrificing their own children to a god. And so Yahweh, their god, made an end to it. Uh, he fulfilled his uh, promise that um, that something bad would happen. And, and Babylon, this kind of superpower of the day, swooped down, besieged Jerusalem, um, and carried away most of the population into exile. Uh, if you want to help kind of place this historically, among those who went were Daniel from the book of Daniel, um, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's the same story. Now, a remnant of, of Israelites did remain in Jerusalem, um, and among them, uh, God raised up prophets tasked with helping the people kind of make sense of this tragedy, trying, uh, trying to work out why this was happening to them. And one of those prophets was Jeremiah. Now, his prophecies are recorded in this book, um, but they're not simple like just foretellings of the future. Sometimes we think of prophecy that way. Um, instead, they are uh, they're theological writing that's designed to help the readers understand the events of history, some past, some present, some future, um, from God's point of view. It's prophecy, altars and prophecies about understanding what's happening around you and what has happened and what will happen from God's point of view. And so right here in the middle, uh, chapters 29 to 33, we, we find two letters um, sent from Jerusalem to Babylon, from the remnant left over to those who had been taken away. Now, how do we read these passages? Uh, because our situation seems pretty far removed from those original recipients. 
Well, it's really interesting that uh, when the Apostle Peter writes to the Christians across Asia Minor in the New Testament, the book of 1 Peter, uh, he addresses them as scattered foreigners or literally strangers of the diaspora (laughs) or the dispersion. Um, It's it's language really deliberately chosen uh, to evoke to these Christians, many of which uh, were Jews, um, their history of the exile um, in order to help them understand as Christians their current situation. Uh, Like the original exiles, uh, the Christians find themselves forced out of their home in Jerusalem and scattered um, across the Roman Empire. Uh, But Peter's image um, points to a deeper spiritual dimension. Their situation and ours is is not so different, actually. Um, Their spiritual situation. Uh, In the first century Roman Empire and modern Melbourne, um, all sorts of religious expression uh, was welcomed except for one. One religious expression uh, was not very much appreciated uh, for for worse or for not so worse. Um, You can't say, it's very on the nose to say, there is one God who alone is truth and who alone offers salvation and who alone deserves worship. That was just not something that you could say, you could believe. Uh, So these Christians that Peter's writing to, refused to bow the knee to any God except Jesus, and they paid for it. Um, At at best, with a social kind of cold shoulder, and at worst, uh, by being oppressed, um, excluded, persecuted, and even executed uh, by the powers that be. Uh, This, I think, is helpful because it shows why Peter, like Jeremiah, called his readers exiles. Uh, not because of their physical location, uh, but because of their spiritual location, that they were spiritually far from home. Our exile as Christians today, um, unlike the Babylonian exile, is actually not because of our unfaithfulness to God, we're not being punished. It's actually because of our faithfulness to Christ. Uh, Simply put, Allegiance to Jesus will always make you a stranger in the world. Now, let's let's think about how we experience spiritual exile in our context, because being a Christian in Australia is vastly different from being a Christian in a place like North Korea. Uh, So what's it like here? Um, And it's interesting because our culture is steeped in the leftovers of rich Christian heritage. Many of the things that our society values comes from centuries of Christian thought and Christian influence. For example, um, inherent human rights and dignity of all people, social welfare systems, public education, freedom of religion. None of them existed in the systems of Greece or Rome. Um, None of them were just easily accessible from early people. All of them became normal because people proclaimed the teachings of Jesus. But over the time, it's easy to forget where we've come from. Uh, The trend for the last few centuries has been to view these moral achievements as an advancement, as flowing not from a belief in God, but simple human reasoning 
Uh, in other words, people think that these wonderful moral things we just kind of came up with. We just we just thought really hard and, and they appeared. Mark Sayers has put it pretty memorably by saying, uh, what modern people want is the kingdom without the king. God's blessings and his life without the God that's behind them and creates them. So what kind of situation does that put Christians in a Western country like Australia? Uh, I remember once talking to, uh, I'm an American friend who had moved over here for a few years, and uh, she began telling me how moving had been a really weird experience uh, because uh, she expected it to be pretty easy. Australia and the United States are pretty similar in terms of like culture and language. But after a few months of being here, she found herself feeling increasingly uncomfortable. <laughs> Some of you from the States may have experienced this too. Uh, she couldn't quite fit, place her finger on why she felt uncomfortable though. Uh, but actually, she realized later, she was experiencing culture shock. Because while there are a lot of similarities between America and Australia, um, there are actually a lot of differences, thousands of them but they're all quite small and subtle. But put together and experienced together, they can be really disturbing. Uh, my friend thought she would feel completely at home here, but actually she, at least for a while, felt quite out of place and uncomfortable. I feel like it's a good illustration of what it feels like to be a Christian um, in a modern Western country in, in Australia. Uh, on the surface, it feels like we should feel very comfortable. We have great things, freedom of religion, freedom of worship. We can pray in public. We can have church facilities. We can talk about our faith openly, about fear of prosecution, uh, things that in many other countries you actually just can't do. And yet for a thousand small reasons, we don't feel at home. Society is convinced that religion is a private affair. Sure, you can believe in God, you can believe in Jesus, you can go to the church, but keep it separate. Don't, don't allow that private stuff to come into public life. Don't bring it into the workplace. Don't bring it to schools. Don't bring it into uh, anything that's not um, either the home or, or, or the church. And um, society has concluded a large, to a large extent that modern people, reasonable modern people, uh, would probably do best to leave religion behind. We've outgrown it. We've graduated. Now, I feel this anytime someone asks me what I do for a living. It's happened recently. Someone said, you know, what do you do? And I said, I pastor a local church. How did they respond? Well, they responded the way that 95% of people do. Uh, they don't, didn't get um, kind of respond really positively, they didn't respond angrily, they simply but firmly and quickly changed the subject. Now, I'm not complaining. I, I get this all the time and it's fine and I, I get it. I understand what, um, I understand it. Uh, but I wonder how anyone else would feel if others saw their vocation as a bit of a conversational embarrassment. Uh, probably not great, I would imagine. Now, so all this is to say that we're not persecuted in Australia. It would be grossly wrong to say that. We have, uh, we're massively blessed to live here as Christians. But neither 
are we completely comfortable? And it might be said that the future holds greater discomforts than we experience or can imagine now. Non-Christian society um, is one reason why we feel not at home here. But it's not actually the main one or the only one. We feel far from home uh, because our true home is in heaven where God is. And where God is, sin isn't. There's no brokenness there. There's no ugliness, no selfishness, no pride, no pain, no suffering, no grief. It is gloriously perfect. Christians have a sense of this because we've been given a taster of that glory. Uh, There is something of that glory inside of us because the spirit of God lives in us. We have glimpsed something of the real deal, something of what this world should be. People who have grown up around uh, polluted air uh, tend not to notice it very much. Um, But anyone who knows what pure air is like finds polluted air just incredibly suffocating. I think in the same way as we breathe the pure air of the gospel of Jesus, more and more we will find the impure air of sin poisonous. And a deep longing grows in us for a place where sin has been filtered out for good. A place that we could feel truly and completely at home. So it's for these reasons it's right to say Christians are spiritual exiles. One, because we live in a culture that doesn't, uh, it isn't aware of sin and doesn't believe in a need for a saviour, but also because we live in a world beset by sin and that we experience it within us and outside in the world as well. So the question is, um, while we are here in exile, uh, what should we do? How should we live? Well, first of all, there are two pretty tempting uh, but unhelpful solutions that we could come up with. We could make it easier on ourselves by conforming to society because the easiest way to get people to like you, as anyone who's ever been to school knows, uh, is to change yourself to be like them, adopt their values, their beliefs, their intuitions. The greater the cultural pressure to conform, the more chance you'll just start just to justify conforming. And this happens with church all the time. We think, well, society is a bit down on miracles, so so maybe we just start saying Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Society is big on people following the desires of their hearts, no matter what. So Jesus becomes like a life coach, cheering on all our decisions, regardless of what they are. Society loves to consume entertainment and services. So Jesus becomes like a curator of your next great spiritual experience. Now, we'd be crazy to think we are immune um, in our church. Perhaps we're not likely to go down any of those kind of super excesses, but little by little we're drawn to make things easy on ourselves, to make our beliefs, our faith, not too objectionable. So that's one option. The other option um, is to not conform but withdraw. And again, there are some extreme examples in the church world. 
Uh, many Christians have done this by literally withdrawing from society and setting up new communities in remote areas far from civilization. Uh, but you can withdraw without actually going anywhere. You can develop an attitude where you see society as evil, utterly. And so people uh, try to create almost like a Christian city within the city. We surround ourselves with Christian schools and family, friends, churches. And, and if the world comes knocking, sure, we'll let them in, but otherwise we'll just kind of stay away. Now, again, this is really tempting as an option. Building relationships with people who don't share your belief is hard work. Being a Christian out in the public sphere takes a lot of energy. And it feels like sometimes the best way to avoid rejection and to avoid uh, discomfort is simply just to not allow yourself a chance to be rejected, to feel uncomfortable. Church community is wonderful. It's a safe and comfortable place to be. And so you know, it feels like spending our whole lives here might be a pretty good idea. So uh, conform or withdraw we all tend one way or the other. We all have a tendency one way or the other. But both have real problems. You can conform to society's version of truth, but doing so is dishonours Jesus, who clearly said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You, that way is, a, is to give up your integrity integrity of your faith and you can withdraw into the safety of a christian bubble but doing so means rejecting jesus command to love your neighbor as yourself and to be sent out into the world so conforming withdrawing they're actually not valid options there is a third option you might call it the jeremiah option uh, Jeremiah writes to those in Babylon, and he says, here's what the Lord says to do. For as long as you're in exile, make yourself at home. Verse 5, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. This language... Um, might remind us of the early chapters of Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. Tend the Garden of Eden. You know? in, in other words, uh, Jeremiah and God is saying, um, get on with what you're meant to be doing as image bearers and as the people of God. Start and maintain good and godly lives. Don't waste your time looking back at the old life. It's, it's gone. It's, it's done. God has placed you here here, in this time, in this place, for a reason. So for now, make yourself at home. And then something more than that, actually, verse 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You can kind of imagine them getting that letter. What? Seek the good of Babylon? Seek the good of the enemy invader? Don't rebel. Don't try to find ways to undermine the government. Don't look to escape. You're telling us to seek the peace and prosperity of this city? 
It's interesting, the Hebrew word that we see translated peace and prosperity there is actually should be familiar to us. Uh, it's shalom. It means peace, but not just the absence of conflict. It means wholeness in every possible sense, wholeness of spirituality, relationships, of morality, physicality, wholeness in every dimension. The punishment of exile was designed to bring Israel to repentance and for them to turn back to the mission that God always intended for them, to be a light to the nations, to show how broken human society can be made whole again. If you read uh, the book of Daniel, you see him and him and his friends um, living this out, refusing to conform or to withdraw, but instead to offer God's wisdom and light, ultimately to the highest levels of authority. Now, this passage um, can be misapplied into our context. You might think it means to seek the peace and prosperity of, of the city um, as being just do anything that might be regarded as good. You might think, oh, it means oh, I could just work hard at my job, maybe you know, participate in elections, do Clean Up Australia Day, that sort of thing. Now, hear me, it can, it can include those things, should include those things, but that's not where it starts. Real wholeness, real shalom, real peace and prosperity always starts with the most important type of wholeness, wholeness of being reconciled to God, having a relationship with him redeemed and restored and renewed. A few weeks ago, we were in 2 Corinthians, uh, where Paul says to his readers that um, we have a ministry of reconciliation. Jesus offers to restore what was lost back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden because of their sin. Jesus offers to bring us back into relationship with God, into closeness, intimacy, to relate again with him as Father as he relates to us as children. And that wholeness is actually what Jeremiah prophesies in verses 11 to 14. Not just about the day when God would bring Israel back to Jerusalem, although that would happen, but when God would bring people back to himself. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now, verse 11 is one of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible um, and also probably one of the most misinterpreted verses in the whole Bible. Uh, it's got nothing to do with material prosperity, at least not much to do. Uh, again, the word for prosper there is shalom. God's plan, he says, is to bring shalom to his people, to bring wholeness to them. Now, eventually some of the exiles did return to Jerusalem, but that didn't bring them wholeness, actually, um, because the following centuries did not see them really flourish as a people. Jeremiah's words would hang in the air until eventually they found a place to land in the one who came heralded as the Prince of Peace. Prince of Shalom. They're a description of what Jesus brought to our world. Jesus would exile himself from his home in heaven to a world that he created but did not recognize him 
and would eventually disown him. Jesus would live without a place to lay his head and be abandoned by those he held dear. He would eventually be dragged out of Jerusalem itself and crucified in a desolate place on the hill of Golgotha. Jesus went into the exile that every rebel deserves. He was forsaken, cut off even from his father. And if that was Jesus' end and his real end, his ultimate end, then that would be our end too. But it wasn't. Jesus rose again. Jesus left the earth to go back home, to go back home to sit at the right hand of his father in heaven. And so, united with Jesus by faith, serve we. Christians are never truly home in this life. It's true. But nonetheless, we can make ourselves at home because God's spirit has made his home in us. He has given us hope, security, a sense of belonging, love, groundedness. And so no matter how far away we might feel sometimes, and we will, the truth is that we are always intimately close to God. And so here is what, G- what Jeremiah prophesied would be our peace and prosperity. That if we call on God, he will always listen. And if we seek God, we will always find him. We do not yet have complete Shalom, complete peace, but it is growing in us and it is grounding us in love and hope. And family, this is what we have to offer our city. Jesus, in his final hours, prayed for all his followers that would come. He prayed, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you, God, would protect them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I have sent you into the world. Jesus sends us into exile to offer hope to those who are trapped there. We have hope that one day we will return home, but there are thousands here who have no hope. There are thousands here who have never breathed the pure air of the gospel. And so to seek their good, their peace and prosperity, their shalom, means to give them a taste of a heavenly home and to show them the way there, to show them the one who said, I go to prepare a place for you. My father's house has many rooms. This mission, I think, is all all the clearer right now in this pandemic because it seems like many people are actually getting a sense of spiritual homelessness. Our normal ways of life have been thrown into disruption. Lots of the things we counted on to provide a sense of security have been tossed aside. Everybody's trying to work out a new normal and everyone is trying to hold on to hope that somehow all will be well, to find a lifeboat to trust in that will bring them to shore. It's pretty tempting, I think, even for me, I think even for us, to think that uh, the vaccines will be that lifeboat. And we praise God for them, for for all of them, (laughs) but there's no guarantee that they will defeat COVID. There may be other variants. There will be other pandemics. The reality is there's no going back to the way things were. So what we can offer the world 
is a sense of security and hope that is true and valid and real in any situation, no matter how disturbing, no matter how tragic. It's not attached to the vaccines or science or technology or human reasoning. It's not attached to human ability of any sort. It's detached to the God who always keeps his promises. The God who says, I will bring you back from captivity. So friends, in the meantime, while we wait for that day, the words of Jeremiah come home to us. While we're here, make ourselves at home. Let's make our home in Melbourne. Let's make our home in the inner west. I don't know how long you expect to be here. Uh, we live in a transient area with people coming and going all the time. I wonder if God might say to us, while we're here, be intentional about it. You're not here for, by accident. You're not here for any reason. You're here because God has placed you here. And maybe you could even consider staying a bit longer than you expected. While we're here in this time and in this place, let's do what Jeremiah says for us to do. Build good and godly lives. Be a community of the faithful followers of Jesus. Proclaim the gospel of Christ in what we do and what we say and who our lives point to. Not to conform, not to withdraw, not to let our faith just sit hiding in private away from public view, but instead to take on the mission of Jesus and to be sent by him out into the city to work for its peace and prosperity, to work for its shalom, and to do it together as God's people, as missional communities, as a church on mission, as a family on mission. I'm going to pray, um, and then if you like, you could spend the next few minutes um, chatting about what does that look like for you? Maybe which, where do you tend? Do you tend towards conforming or withdrawing? And what would it look like for you, for your family, for your missional community to seek the peace and prosperity of our city? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for this uh, word to us. What a challenging word. Uh, we uh, ex experience all sorts of temptations to, um, to make things comfortable for ourselves, to avoid the mission. And yet, Lord, you raise our eyes to Jesus, the one who was exiled for us, who sought our good, our peace and our prosperity far from home so that we might be brought home, reconciled with your father reconciled with you we thank you father that out of that blessing we are called to be a blessing and to be a community that shines light and acts like salt in a world which so desperately needs both of those things and father give us practical tangible ways to go about that and help us lord to prioritize it and to sacrifice what's necessary, Lord, for your glory, for the good of our city, and for our good as we are grown to be more like Jesus. And so, Father, we pray these things in his name. Amen.